welcome back to the third wheel. Uh, we are continuing our read through of The Way of Kings by Brandon Sanderson. Today we're going to be talking about chapters 24 through 32, which include some interludes in the middle that are interluding. I'm Jesse. I'm the person who's read all of these books before. I'm Tyler. I'm the person that's read Way of Kings and is in Wax and Wayne. And I'm Bion, the one who just read the assigned chapters, and I just finished 10 minutes ago. It might be 15 by now. 15. Yeah, it's probably been 15. These takes are incredibly fresh. The freshest. Delivered to your door. COVID-free. Freshly garden-picked takes. Organic. Every take had its own space to run around in and its own little name. Locally (laughs) grown. Artisanal. Puts your mind at ease knowing that these takes were treated well before they were killed. Anyways. Some might say that it's thematically appropriate that they were killed and then recorded just before death. Get it? Like, like the chapter headers. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a connection. I see what you did there. The corkboard's really paying off. So... I don't quite have a through line for this section, so I'm just going to hop straight into it, and we're just going to go chapter by chapter, the way we do in podcast land. So, chapter 24 is called The Gallery of Maps, and I know Tyler was sort of hype for how video gamey all this is. Yeah, like, the presence of a literal physical leaderboard updated in real time is crazy. Like... You can just go and see your elo. (laughs) It's just every part of this chapter is sort of just to reinforce how much Alethes are all fuckboys. It's just their culture. Yeah, they... um, They're all pretty trash. Yeah. They'll trash talk you on Xbox Live and say things about your mother. Dalinar to Elocor is like, I'm making out with your mother. (laughs) Right now. That's at the end of the book. Anyways. It just seems like a lot of nonsense. And a lot of um, meaningless conflict. Yeah. And um, compared to Cal's raw suffering, (laughs) arrows flying, blood and death and mud, and chasms, these bros are just trying to get those gems though and uh it's it's sad and it very much just seems like uh this is society sort of chapter yeah well this chapter is definitely all about how like it's reinforcing the synthesis between the culture and the setting and the themes and Actually, like, the level of detail of the way everything intersects and makes the world operate the way it does is pretty impressive to me. If you had asked me to come up with, do these characters have, like, a physical leaderboard, I wouldn't have come up with that. But now that I have seen the High Princes hanging out, I am, like, totally understanding... And it makes perfect sense. Like, these are the exact kind of people who would build a leaderboard out of magic at the place that they are performing a vengeance war. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just 
to be like, if Dalinar is such a cool high prince, why doesn't he even remember his dead wife? (laughs) (laughs) These gem hearts are a measure of how much vengeance we've gotten. Yeah. Um, So Dalinar is walking around this sort of war room with the intention of getting another high prince on his side to do a joint joint plateau run and we got some discussion about why this just tactically doesn't make any sense based on the way that they think about the war like because they're paranoid and selfish and awful warmongering yeah well that's true but there's also stuff they also talk about how just bringing more troops doesn't increase your chances because of the nature of having to cross all of the chasms and fighting on small plateaus which makes working together even less appealing than their culture would originally make it yeah the only time that it isn't necessarily like that is um there's like a couple bigger plateaus i know one of them later they start throwing out some numbers that seem pretty crazy as far as like spoilers it's the tower I'm only bringing it up because we're talking about it right now, but, like, for some of these plateaus, it's, like, what is smaller versus bigger? Because the tower is supposed to be the biggest, and they talk about, like, 30,000 troops on that plateau at one point. So it's, like, how small are these small plateaus? Well, that's, like, the biggest, I think. Yeah, but still, like... Yeah, it's a lot. So, essentially, Dalinar gets totally shut down by this... Uh, totally irrelevant high prince. The weakest of them. Yeah. This guy barely uh, even has a name. Yeah, Royon. I see it here. Um, so Adolin comes out, and he's been watching this whole thing. And essentially, Adolin and Dalinar get into an argument about whether or not Dalinar is crazy. Also, whether or not Sadeus is a snake or a viper. Vipers uh, are snakes. Neither of them trusts him, although Dalinar has been given a vision saying to trust Sadeus. But Those sneaky dreams, Spren. So, Adolin is pretty confused about why Dalinar is just letting Sadeus come into their camp and question their people as if Dalinar is guilty. Because if you don't let him, then you let guilty too. Mm-hmm. And guilty we see later, either way. We see later that their men make them look guilty anyways. Good job, men. True fighters here. None of you can read. All of you true men. I mean, reading is for women. Um, and we get a, a bit of a beat where Adolin talks about how Dalinar treats his children differently from all the other soldiers in other army, the other High Prince's armies. He says that Adolin and Renarin are essentially spanked every time that they step over the line, but all the other High Princes can talk smack, and Dalinar won't let Adolin... uh, put them back in the line and that will be a part of dalinar's realignment of his thinking later yeah um dalinar's a really strict parent yeah Yeah. no and he realizes he has to be an even stricter parent i'm sure adolin's gonna love it it's it's in a way that 
isn't the way I made it out to sound like, because I didn't want to just get all spoilers. But essentially, Adolin says, you are going crazy. I'm not just going to tiptoe around it. Maybe we need to figure something out. Which is good. And Dalinar's like, sure, I'm on it. Let's figure something out, dude. Yeah, he does that at the end of this section. And they're all huffy with each other. And that's about the end of the chapter. So chapter 25 is called The Butcher. This is another beloved Kaladin flashback chapter. I don't love these chapters, but they're here. He's just such a kid. Yeah, I don't mind that. It's just, I want to see what's going on. Anyways, we got some cartoonishly folksy stuff with, like, villagers saying, it ain't right what they do, cutting into folks and peering in to see what the Almighty placed hidden for good reason. Like, wow, that is the most provincial way to think about a surgeon of all time. Yeah, also, um, I had the actual note later in the chapter, but this uh, part you pulled out also applies, so I'm going to talk about it right here. The When I was finishing this section however long ago. It was also at the time that I was finishing Ward, the worm sequel by Wildbow. And something that I read at that point as like a post-mortem of Ward made me think about this chapter in particular, where something that Wildbow does is he leans too far the other way, where he's like, I am trusting you as my reader to pick up on the subtext of what I'm saying. And something but that it goes so far that it like turns into the opposite of what he's trying to say. Yeah. Like some people pick up on the opposite of some people pick up on the plan is mass suicide. And in uh, way of Kings and all of the other Sanderson stuff that I've read now that I'm paying attention to it, he does the opposite where early on, you can catch stuff, but then there's a point where he's like, I now want you as the reader to understand what I'm saying. So I'm now going to have multiple characters say it out loud so that you are, so that there's a hundred percent chance that we are on the same page. Like, I want you to know in this chapter that the people in town are against Cal's dad, even though he's helping them. I want you to know that Liren was into Cal even if you didn't pick up on it earlier. It's just a lot of like, and it's not necessarily bad. It's just like the subtext becomes text once he's like, I am not going to continue the story until you are aware of what I was trying to get at. I think that has, I think that has something to do with the fact that a lot of the times the climaxes in Brandon Sanderson books involve characters coming to realizations and if you're not explicit about it, it just sort of seems like stuff happens for no reason. Yeah. So I think that's sort of why he's leaned into that is because otherwise it just sort of seems like stuff happens for no reason. Do you so. think if these things had been more chronological, he'd need to do that, though? Because if we were introduced to Cal as Kid Cal, son of the surgeon that my the village hates, and then we got all that development into Cal the slave and now cal the boss of bridge four would you still need the same level of description at least for myself when reading it i kind of felt like why am i reading about this now i don't care i want to know what he's doing with bridge four 
Mm-hmm. Like we get it. He 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 was like a weird like in between place where he wasn't super privileged, but he still had enough privilege where like he couldn't even hang out with his own caste system of whatever. Mm-hmm. For myself at least, while I often enjoy the different point of views and time jumps, sometimes it feels like it's too much. Because yeah. what I think what does re- it bring to the story by having us jump back and forth in this way? I think it's to preserve the ensemble because in the next book we have a different character's flashbacks and in the next book we have a different character's flashbacks and if we had spent like the first book I guess you could try and put all of those flashbacks together at the front of the first book but there are reasons why say Dalinar's flashbacks are different than the way they actually happened like We know how Dalinar doesn't remember his wife. And, like, there are reasons why we've separated this stuff that's happened in the past based on which character we're focusing on in each book. And if we had started the first book with, like, 300 pages of Cal, it would have sort of been, like, Kaladin is the main character instead of us having an ensemble. I mean, I... Not that... I would say, if anything... The only reason that I would hesitate to say that Kaladin is the main character of this book is... Oh, he's definitely the main character of this book. He's just not the main character of the series. Although he might kind of still be, but... I guess I've only read one of them. I was gonna say I have a hard time imagining how he's not the main character of the series. Because it can't all be about him and his trauma. That's not true. He's got a lot of trauma. (laughs) I mean... I guess he could be the main character of the series in the same way Rand is the main character of The Wheel of Time, but there are books he's completely absent from. Mm. Fair and enough. like Rand Not is the main character therapy. of the wheel Yeah. Rand is the main character of the Wheel of Time, but only like fifteen percent of the series is from his perspective. Got it. It's about that level, I would say. Cause in the second book, he has a lot of focus, but he's not the main character. Yeah, I was going to say, the only other person that feels like they could be the main character is Shallan, and that's really only in the last, like, two or three chapters from her point of view. That's why she's the main character of the next book. Hey. So, back to this particular chapter in this particular book. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) No, it's good. So, Callan hears some gossipy bitches accuse his father of stealing those spheres from the old dead city lord Wistio. Yeah, what a monster that act would be. Yeah. What a unnatural dude. Um, so Kaladin gets mad and he goes to he goes to, uh, pout to his mom who's doing some manual labor around town to make some extra money. Real people. Uh, yeah, just want to point out, it's really weird that Cal uh, calls his parents by their names in his own <laughs> narration. Like, I don't know. Especially since he's, like, still young, middle schoolish-esque age, right? Even if these were all flashbacks in real time, like, I know I don't think about my parents as their first names. It's weird. I don't think... For me, I feel like the narration of the flashbacks is a little less is a little less close third person and a bit more distant. But that just might be a feeling and a justification. That might not actually be the case. But yes, it is kind of strange. Yeah, I think it might be a justification because we're still privy to Kel's thoughts. 
Yeah. So, yeah, my only thinking is and that no it's like is. Branderson didn't want to write mom said, Mo- dad said, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, because that would really be him narrating. Yeah, which is fine. It's just weird. Yeah. Um, there was a line here that I thought was interesting where his mother is saying that having the power over the lives of men is an uncomfortable responsibility. And Callan says, what if I don't want that responsibility? What if I want to be something normal, like a baker or a farmer or, and then he thinks, or a soldier, someone who definitely doesn't have the responsibility of the power over lives of men. Um, Yeah. Which they totally do. Yeah. So I think it's, so I think it's interesting here where he's, Saying that he has an objection to the responsibility, but that's clearly not what he's actually has a problem with. So it's tr- interesting to try and pinpoint what exactly about being a surgeon is something he doesn't want. He wants people to like him. Pretty much. Like wants, me. He just wants to be cool and strong. Yeah. And all the girls to notice him. <laughs> Pretty much. In a way that he doesn't have to be subservient as a dark-eyed person. So while him and his mom are talking, his dad comes by and says, the new city lord is here, and we should all come around and make a good appearance for this new person who's going to set the tenor of the rest of our lives. Hopefully he's not a shit heel. This absolute trash bag of a human. We'll get more to why he's an absolute trash bag. There's an interesting note where uh, Liren and... What are these people's names? Cal's mother and father are having a bit of a conversation. Uh, I think you mean Hesina? Yes, Hesina and Liren. Um, they have a bit of a aside about how badly it went when Liren met Hesina's parents. And I'm just going to say that when only the first book was out, it was a favorite pastime of the fandom to theorize wildly about Kaladin's mother's secret identity. Because we get some weird hints, because she always has her hair covered, and we get some weird... There's In the next flashback chapter, we talk, we hear how we don't talk about Hasina's parents ever, and it didn't go well when Kaladin's father met them. So, Oh my god, Hasina some... is Zeth. <laughs> And because um, when in another flashback, the, the father's like, Cal, don't come back here. Don't do it. Don't take your beautiful wife and drag her out. I don't know if he says capital, but don't 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 take her away from the life she's always known for this backwater town. He essentially says that, which yeah. also hints some stuff about her status. They could have had they could have had a different life. Yeah. So yeah, if you feel like wildly theorizing over. Kaladin's mother, feel free. It would really put you in the shoes of the fandom. I just did. In 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 this world, you either have dark eyes or light eyes, correct? You can't have a blend. Your eyes You're... can be different shades, but I think it's pretty delineated as far as, like, this shade is the line between light and dark. The paper like, bag test. Like, you'll have flecks of light in your dark eyes. You won't have, like, a slightly lighter shade of dark. Stuff like that. So, the new city lord... So, the new city lord Rashon comes. He has a ton of servants and everything. He steps out of his carriage, takes a look around, shakes his head, and goes back inside. What a pretentious person. 
Also, Cal notes how much furniture he brings. He has like a whole caravan of stuff. And essentially his dad's like, well, that's a bad sign. Like a real bad sign. Because his dad also says, hey, you're not going to say anything, but and, more polite. Yeah. And then the the city lord specifically points him out as someone to be disdained. It's like, it's your fault I'm here. Bye. So. Maybe if you hadn't stolen all that money. Hey, he didn't steal it. It got willed to him. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Tyler, keep track of where we're at. Bion doesn't even know what a spoiler is. I really don't mind spoilers per se, but also take all the wealth and redistribute it. Also, break out the guillotines. Also, the place that the story is currently at is very like, yeah, he definitely got willed it. Right, guys? Nobody believes it except Cal. So chapter 26 is called Stillness. And Dalinar is being read to a excerpt from The Way of Kings. And it's some pretty philosophy about men being candles. How nice. Wow, this is a long chapter where not that much actually happens. Yeah, they talk about how there's wine of different colors. And yeah. they have like similar flavors but different alcohol content. Well, I mean, think of it this way. We have, like, a ton of different kinds of alcohol with different colors and different alcohol contents. Oh. That's fair. But none of them are... It's... I think they just call all of them wine. I just don't also, know that I would call no- it orange, but that's fair. You'll also notice that in in this world, they call every bird a chicken. What? Yes. Every bird is a chicken in this world. It's a small detail, but... Sanderson was like, you know what? They're just chickens. Everyone's a yeah. chicken. We have weird lobster dogs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Pretty much. In one of the books, you'll hear a mention of a strange, colorful chicken perched on someone's shoulder repeating their words. And it's like, that's a parrot. That's that's just a parrot, sir. I kind of wish you hadn't told me because I could have just continued imagining it as a chicken. Just a fat old chicken. Just a chicken on their shoulder that talks. So, yeah. When they talk wait, wait, wine. Wait. It's like that vine. The Kardashian one, where they're like, is that a chicken? And it's clearly not a chicken. (laughs) Is this ska music? Harsh but fair. But yeah, essentially they call it all wine, but I assume it's just like different kinds of liquor. Fair enough. Plus, there's there's a lot of different colored wines. Like, there's grape wine, but then there's cordials and there's hippie. Cherry wine. Yeah. Blueberry wine. Elderflower, dandelion. All these other plant-based... I can see in your face that you're only saying this to agitate me, and I want you to know that it's working. People literally drink absinthe, and that's like neon green. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, anyways, so, while Dalinar is having his bedtime story read to him... (laughs) uh, After he's tucked in, in his shark plate... (laughs) The horns start to sound, which tell him that a gem heart has arisen on a plateau that his army could actually reach and he decides that he needs like he he doesn't decide that he wants a gem heart he decides that for his credibility in the camps and for the good of his soldiers they need to go to battle so he says that we march and they do Um, and everyone is super hype because they haven't done this in a long time yeah they're 
Yeah, this is a, I remember this scene being pretty good. So there's a lot of talk about how everyone is like pretty shocked and they all get ready for battle. And Sadea sidles up while everyone's getting ready for battle. It's like, I want to talk to all your soldiers. And Delmar's like, we don't have time for this. And Sadea says, like, great, perfect timing. Let me tag along. It's like, I diagnose you with having time for this. <laughs> Pretty much. So essentially, Dalinar is on his way to battle, and Sadeus is just pestering him the whole time. Yeah. And there are a couple lines in here. There are a couple lines in here that were sort of interesting to me. Uh, Dalinar quotes something from the Way of Kings, saying that to lack feeling is to be dead, but to act on every feeling is to be a child. For me, it's like, how do I manage to do both of these all the time? Wow. Something something Elokar. <laughs> and it's like... I mean, I feel like that also reflects our society. Wow, yeah. this really says a lot about our society. Well, I, I know I'm using society as a, as a word in that way, but our generation, the experiences we've had collectively, it definitely impacts the overall mental health and stability. I don't have insurance to get my medication. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everyday life is directly impacted, so... While we might not be in such a ridiculous society, such as men and women have literal different foods served to them, we do still have strange, archaic systems that have continued to fail people and will continue to do so. We kind of do have different foods, though, right? I mean, when you go to, like... Buffalo wings are for men. When you go to your local Denny's... If a man orders a big old plate of pancakes with a bunch of strawberries and the lady's like, I want a big old steak for breakfast, that's kind of strange. But even further than that is like, alcohol? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like there are definitely man and woman uh, drink separations. Yeah, with like girly cocktails. Even though uh, mixed drinks have more alcohol content than your glass of whiskey on the rocks. Yeah, like the mixed drinks are way more potent. The thing that keeps happening to me is like, oh, that sounds good. It arrives. It's in like a big (laughs) sparkly glass with like bedazzling on the outside and a big sign that says you're a girl. (laughs) And it's like, oh, I just... I ordered the thing that sounded more tasty, but it's like, this is presented as a feminine drink once you actually get it. Real men don't drink fruit. Real men do not consume fruit. Yeah, I guess that is true. So this says a lot about our society. Oh no. (laughs) Um, Oh no. The other part of this conversation that stood out to me was that Sadeus asserts that the surge-binding powers of the Radiance were a lies, which I didn't remember. I kind of thought that the default was that people sort of accepted it as a thing that was true a long time ago that isn't true anymore. But I guess I don't actually know if this is the default belief of magic is just straight not real, or Sadeus is just trying to piss off Dalinar. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if the default was magic isn't real, right? Like, mm-hmm. that seems to be a common... I'm not going to say that it's a Sanderson-ism, but certainly, uh, to use my recently acquired Wax and Wayne knowledge, uh, there's a similar thing in there, where it's only like 300 years after Mistborn, but already people are like, a Mistborn, as in a person that could use all of the metals, is literally a 
thing that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a child's story. I mean, I think it's more of a, a broad, common fantasy trope of the old magic that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Is, is a more common trope than people just thinking that in a fantasy world that magic just isn't real. Would you say that legend fades to myth and even myth may be forgotten by the time that the age that gave it birth comes around again? Hey, at least in the Wheel of Time, they know that women can do magic. That's fair. They're not like, those Aes Sedai are all street hucksters. But they don't know what magic is. Like, yeah. remember at I mean, the start, to be they're fair, like, I don't the know. Aes, the Aes Sedai barely know what magic is. Yeah, they're like, Aes Sedai can teleport in and, well, that's fair. Aes Sedai can just abduct you and mind control. Well, that's fair. Never mind. Anyways, so... Uh, this chapter sort of transitions into being a big ol' action sequence. Yeah, which... With... The thrill. Yeah, there's a lot about the thrill. And also, Bion, it was interesting that you mentioned that there's... I feel like there's sort of a... You mentioned that there's a contrast between the way the Alethi nobles are treating the war and the way it's treated in Kaladin's perspective. Mm -hmm. Because we also get a big ol' battle sequence from Kaladin's perspective that's completely different from this. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Dalinar spends this whole uh, battle sequence from the perspective of someone who is behind the visor of some shard plate. I was just going to say, he's basically invincible in this entire fight. So, So, like, he's barely even a person in this battle. He's just sort of a big vortex of death. Yeah, because he, like, anything that his sword touches dies, and he is, like I said, like, completely invincible. So... So I think Death this is just sort of an, another sort of aspect of how aspects of the setting and magic synthesize with the themes and characters in ways that just sort of continue to impress me. Every aspect of the way the world works is there for a reason and reinforces what Brandon Sanderson is going for. And I'm, I don't think Brandon Sanderson is some spectacular auteur i think he's an incredibly admirable worksman yeah i mean it also seems very it seems i don't know if likely is the word but i would believe it if i was told that like he sat down i think we talked about this if he sat down and he was like the central conflict is this i want to show it from these perspectives therefore every single time that i am in perspective x it needs to be x every Mm -hmm. single time so like every single time that dalinar is in a fight it needs to be man it sure is sick wearing shard plate and then suddenly feeling wait this isn't sick i'm sick yeah like which is what happens in this chapter yeah it comes across as being very um, thematically coherent Mm -hmm. uh but yeah i agree i don't know that he's like you know, the second coming when it comes to writing. I think it's just that he is very diligent in, like, these things need to be thematically coherent and all fit together. And And he sort of shows his work in a very apparent way. Yeah. Which I kind of appreciate. Yeah, and then by the time that you're done, you're like, yeah, you know what? Doing that was actually enough to make me believe that it was really something special. Yeah. Um, So, yes, in this chapter... Dalinar starts to feel the thrill. He's even kicking around bodies just to piss off the Parshen. Yeah, I pulled that out. I was like, is that 
That seems really strange for a thing for Dalinar, Mr. Like, I am Honor Incarnate to do is like... Well, there's Dalinar Honor Incarnate, and there's also Dalinar the Blackthorn, which is also brought up in this chapter. And as soon as he starts to think of himself as the Blackthorn, that's when he sort of has a perspective shift, and he's like, oh, this is terrible. It's like, I'm the Blackthorn, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> wow, actually though. Yeah. Um, also, so... hey, meta spoiler, his sword is called Oathbringer. That's the it's name the of name one of the, of the books. That's the name of the third book. I wonder who the main character of the third book is. Wow. I, wait. Oh, I get it. It's him. Because it, his it sword. Oathbringer. Wow. Anyways, that's enough sarcasm poisoning. Beyond's whole head just moved with the force of the eye roll. <laughs> Anyways, so Adolin comes in and saves Dalinar because Dalinar is pretty much locked up on the battlefield because he doesn't want to be killing anyone anymore. Yeah, I do have something in here that I pulled out that I now know the answer to why it's like this. Um, but the Parshendi have orange blood? Yeah, like they're not human. No, like different people in the places called Roshar, like the whole continent world. Yeah. That's a question. Wait, what was the question? The whole, like, continent planet is called Roshar. Yeah, I think it's sort of like a Pangea-type deal. Yeah, yeah, like, different people on Roshar have just, like, super weird colored blood and stuff. I um, mean, Thalens literally have eyebrows so long they tuck them behind their ears. Yeah, it's weird. a strange place. So genetically, they're, they're different, so that means later when the rock guy who has the really long name that nobody can pronounce so they just call him rock does he have different blood because he's from a different I mean, place I, I don't know if his blood is literally a different color like the parshendi but yes he is like i mean just in the same way that races are visibly distinct on earth races are visibly distinct on roshar they're just different races than we're used to yeah we don't see people on earth with super long eyebrows or for me that's the one that sticks out as being kind of weird and distinct or with, like, chitinous bio-armor. <laughs> they they just, aren't human. you just grow for yourself. Or, like, perfect self-biological control. Like... Also the, not human. The guy that destroys the temple. Yeah. yeah. And, we'll get to him. That's a good interlude. The reason I was just asking is just because, um, like, race is a social construct, and I know that there's physical representations of divides of race, but if you actually look at, like, the DNA itself, we're, we're not separate. And most of the re ways that you can categorize, like, African Americans tend to have certain higher risk factors are highly environmental and societal as opposed to their actual genetic component. So, like, true. while we have race as a box that we still check on medical things, it's less of a white people get this and black people get this and Asian people get this. It's more of a generalized demographical thing it's not actually real like obviously the implications are but from a medical perspective and a science perspective it's it's not like they're dis distinctly whatever it's like if aliens came in they would have no idea because we, we we'd be the same it's a good thing parshendi are literally not human which is why they don't have red blood. What does Parsh mean? Because you have Parsh men and Parshendi. I think the they say later that Parshendi yeah. is just something they call them because of the, their relationship. The original to 
Yeah, the original is Parshman. I don't know what Parsh means, but Parshendi means just a Parshman who can think. Yeah, it's just... They are called that because they are similar to the it, Parshman. It's actually, it's actually kind of a slur. Uh, Whoa. They don't, call them, they don't call themselves the Parshendi, I'll just say that. I think they call themselves, like, the Singers or something. We'll find out. I haven't even learned that yet. Okay. Yeah, they don't call themselves Parshendi. It's a slur. Um, if I'm not so, winking towards the microphone, then you know that I don't know it yet. Okay. So no one can answer your question. Okay. So at the end of this battle, Dalinar is going away when he sees a Parshendi shardbearer watching him leave. And he's like, that's weird. Why weren't you in the battle? This dude comes back later. Also not a dude, but Whoa. I don't really consider that a spoiler, but... How dare you assume the gender of a chitinous alien? Actually, the well, I mean, it's do have. it's kind of interesting. In in universe, all of the Alethi are like, they're all men, and then later they're like, wait a minute, is no, they're not. Is that a women? That's unnatural. Just like men reading. So that's the end of that chapter. Chapter twenty-seven is called Chasm Duty. Uh, sorry, just to one last thing on that last chapter. Uh huh. There's some stuff in here that I highlighted that I highlighted in retrospect for the wrong reason, because it was just more questions about the exact nature of the thrill, but I realize rereading my highlight that it's totally a spoiler for the end of the book. So I can't talk about it. We can just leave it at the fact that the thrill is real and not a metaphor. No, I mean, the, the overarching question that I had... about the thrill was like is it a feedback loop because uh at one point in here he says the thrill consumed dalinar giving him strength focus and power the question is like is the the thrill a literal like thing that exists as you are fighting good now the nature of the universe is making you fight better or is it just dalinar is so hyped to fight that now he fights better the thrill sprinter around you. Which you don't have to answer, because if I don't know, I assume that'll be explored more later. I was talking about a different note that I can't even read, because there's no way I could read it without winking towards the microphone. Yeah. Well, in this section, we get Dalinar talking to Adolin about the thrill, and they describe it as analogous feeling. Like, this isn't anything... Like, they experience it the same way, so this isn't just, like, one person's thing. It is an actual phenomenon, not just sort of one person's thing. Fair enough. So, we'll get more about it later. So, chapter 27 is called Chasm Duty. Uh, We get a lot of camp life scenes at the beginning, where it ends up with Gaz essentially saying that they've been moved from their work detail into chasm duty, where they're going to be going down into the chasms and fishing all the valuables off corpses that have washed up, which is considered to be the worst, because when you go in and out, you have to get cavity searched. Also, because the um, chasm fiends still exist. Yes, there's a lot of reasons why it's not great. Although I picked out the, like, 
the fact that they specifically don't like it because it requires you to be cavity searched both in and out. You gotta go through the TSA each way. Nobody wants like that. Like the, ult- the ultra TSA. <laughs> You've all been selected for secondary searching. Yeah. Um, so essentially this is like the worst duty you can pull as a bridgeman. Besides, you know, actually going on a bridge run. So while they're down in the chasms, Calden tries and tries real hard to get everyone to talk and be friends. And it's kind of awkward, and it's supposed to be. But then Rock does his best and makes friends with Dummy. And Dummy sings real good, and he talks about being an apprentice to someone who kicked him out. Hmm. That's going to be a thing. Um, we get some details about Horn Eater names being full-length poems. Yeah, sort of which fun. is cool. So a lot of this is just fleshing out the tenor of the way that the bridgemen interact with each other. A lot of it is just set up for... Like, I talked before about how Brandon Sanderson goes to great lengths to justify the way that Bridge 4 will treat Calden at any given point, and this is part of that. Yeah, I guess I just mean the number of people that are like introduced here by more than name with like here's one trait about them uh here's their place in the group in this moment like all of that feels like it doesn't matter but by the end it very much sells you on like yeah i like this group i want them all to not die please that would be pretty sick I mean, later in this section, we get introduced to the Lopin, who was actually the main character of the entire series. Cousin. Uh, Goncho. Every single time Lopin is on screen, my brain just autofills it as a Michael Pena, specifically in Ant-Man. It is kind of similar to that. Every time he tells a story, it's just like that character telling one that goes for like five minutes and is all narrated in his voice, regardless of which character is talking. It's really great. I love Lopin. Can't wait for him to die tragically. Wow. But yes, like, it seems like a lot of characters, but it's sort of the thing that Brandon Sanderson does where the characters aren't necessarily nuanced, but they're well-drawn. So you'll know enough about them to have some sort of attachment when they're, like, brought up in passing during battle sequences later. Um, It's just enough, I think. So, while they're down there searching corpses for valuables, Kaladin notices a spear sticking out and sort of starts fiddling with it, and all the men start making fun of him, saying that he's, like, a wannabe soldier. This man has never seen a spear. He doesn't know what the word spear means. Why is he holding this stick? He just wants to think of himself as important. How dare he? Which, A, is realistic for these sort of beaten down guys who aren't won over to him yet, and B, makes it important for Kaladin to actually start doing some showing off, which he wouldn't have done just for no reason. Like... Yeah, um, this scene is great. The... So, after he, like, begins preparing to do his little spear kata. kata. Yeah, exactly. So there's a section where it says, And Kaladin was in another place. 
He was listening to Tux chide him. He was listening to TM laugh. And it goes on and on. Um, But the part that I like is right at the end. The last one is he was alone in a chasm deep beneath the earth. So on and so forth. It like this whole section where he's got like seven or eight of these little one sentence scenes by mixing in the current reality with that it like is reinforcing how much he's dissociating and getting lost in his memories in this moment yeah like the present time is not distinct from his memories yes but this is also a pretty cathartic moment which is nice he gets to reaffirm to himself that like being a warrior is not a negative thing it is something that is literally what he's meant to do like there's a line that i like this you were not shocked when a child knew how to breathe you were not shocked when a sky eel took flight for the first time you should not be shocked when you hand kaladin Stormblast a spear and he knows how to use it so it's like it's reaffirming to himself that there is something that he is like meant for which he's missed He's meant to be blessed by the storm. Yeah, he's going to spear real good. Um, And essentially, he does his kata and it sort of shuts everyone up and makes them acknowledge the fact that he is a trained soldier and might have something to provide as a military leader. The fact that the word kata was used made it really hard for me to stay on the moment. He he's like, a weeb. I was like, he, he's just talking about it casually. Like, it was just some kata. It's like, oh, God, you might as well have pulled out a katana, sir. Kaladin I mean, finds a fedora on one of the corpses down in the chasm. While you were picking up women, I was training the kata. I was studying the spear. Pretty much. I was being blessed by the storm. So the other thing that happens while they're down in the chasms is that Kaladin learns the fact that the Parshendi aren't wearing armor. They grow their armor. It's almost like they're not human. How convenient. Yeah. Although, then are you just, like, always wearing the armor? That seems inconvenient. Is it, like, molting, but it's molting for war? I I don't know. Interesting point. Because lobsters are technically immortal. They just have to deshell themselves sometimes. And if they get caught while they're being deshelled, that's when they die. Arpershendi? No, because obviously they, they die from getting hit by people. No, no, no. Beyond. The dogs are lobsters. The parshen. <laughs> but yes, that is a good question. And we get a lot more about Parshendi, the intersection between Parshendi culture and physiology in the second book. So we'll get there. Great. Um... So, while Kaladin's spear kata might have won some people over, what really wins people over is some food. And we get a nice little scene where Rock makes stew for everyone. Is this the first time that we get the Rock stew? Yeah. Dang. The Rock stew is a uh, cornerstone of the team dynamic. Stone soup. There's also a line here... uh, There's a line here that sticks out to me where... Some people are hesitantly leaving the barracks to see what's going on with the stew. And Kaladin is sort of concerned that people will think he's faking 
and being contrived just to make people like want to be friends. And at one point, someone comes out and it says, Calden smiled at him, a forced smile. Sometimes that was all one can one could offer. Let it be enough. Which sort of is nice to me. Like, even if you aren't truly happy, the act of providing any kind of created happiness to someone is a gesture in itself, which I think is valuable. Gay? <laughs> no, it, it's, it's something sweet. we could all learn from. It's, it's nice. Don't worry, I'll cut that out. <laughs> no, don't worry. Uh, no, I sent a text related to this kind of how the world would be a lot better if everyone was just a little bit more bisexual. Yeah, so I mean, just make it a little more gay. It would have been better. Yeah. Society would clearly be better. Listen, Kaladin is very adept at playing with spears. <laughs> it's just Anyways. it's just a bunch of men in that barracks. All ship rock and cow. I'm sure you can find the feck. Um, um so chapter twenty eight is called Are You Looking Up Kaladin Rock Fanfic? I'm just going to Stormlight Archive on AO3. Um you can see relationships. Okay. Include relationships. Kaladin Adolin. Kaladin Adolin Shalon. Kaladin Renarin. Wow. There's a lot of Kaladin. Kaladin and Syl. We'll explore this later. This will be a <laughs> mini-sode. Alright. So, chapter 28 is called Decision. This is a really long chapter. Um, it's essentially a lot of vignettes detailing Dalinar's thought process that eventually leads to him coming to the conclusion that he's going to abdicate to Adolin. I don't have a single note for this chapter. There's a couple of important scenes, but in the end, it's a lot. there's a lot of filler. Great. It's one of those things where it might actually be better represented in a movie or show as opposed to uh, in book form. Because usually, I would say that the books are better, but in this case, it was really uninteresting. Well, it wasn't uninteresting so much as tiresome to keep reading as he continues to dwell. Um, but I mm -hmm. think watching it in a scene, I could get the development that he's clearly going through while also not having to suffer through reading the chapter. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of dialogue that isn't, like, the most important line-by-line -line dialogue. Uh... There, there's a lot here. Um, Fibrous. Yes. Lots of literary eat your, fiber. Eat your veggies. Um, really, the most important part of this s chapter is when Dalinar decides to use his shard plate to aid the work of the common man instead of just for killing. As he should. That was actually my favorite part. Good yeah, job, it's sir. It's a pretty iconic Dalinar moment. He uses his shard plate and shard blade to assist with the digging of a latrine, which people are kind of freaked out about because no one's ever seen anyone use this for this before. Yeah, you're not supposed to- you weren't supposed to do that, as they say. But it says a lot about how so much more could be developed instead of being warmongering, they focused on bettering the people. So it's sort of a manifestation of how his readings of the Way of Kings are affecting him. He is serving his people with his power. It's a iconic Dalinar moment. Well, I suppose I liked Dalinar a little bit because of that scene. It was a good scene. 
it's a good one. He's he's trying to figure out how to be a good leader with using his power for something other than killing. Um, so he digs latrines for many hours and misses his appointment with his sister-in-law. Please, his extremely hot sister-in-law? Yeah, they'll remind you every time how hot she is. Um, and she is there to let him know that Yasna is trying to contact him via magic cell phone. We have magic cell phones. But it relies on reed and parchment. Seems kind of Harry Potter-esque, you know? You gotta have your reed set up and your old paper. Yeah, it does seem kind of Harry Potter-ish. Um, so essentially, Yasna is writing to Dalinar, trying to get some more info about what it was like when Gavilar and Dalinar were the people to make first contact with the Parshendi. And she thinks this is going to help with her research into the Voidbringers. Hmm. Um, and we get a bit of an update here that Shalon is indeed still Yasna's ward and is doing drawing pictures for her over span read, which is kind of fun. She's just off screen for a while. For a let's check how many chap how many pages? 198 to 547. She's off screen for 350 pages. Where's my Stormlight version of Kurt Roll stats that will tell me how many days she was off screen? It's a lot. And at the end of this chapter, Dalinar makes his proclamation to Navani that he is planning on stepping down. And that is the end of part two. Question. Are you interested in going back and reading the chapter headings of this part? Uh, I think that they... Even having finished the book, they still don't make any more sense all put together than they did the first time. Then we'll wait on going back on those. So to bring us back, just going to go ahead and say I did do my best to find a Cal Rock slash fic. Couldn't do it. Well... You're just going to have to make it yourself. Beyond keeps trying to tempt me into writing fanfiction. He really should. It's a good place to start. It'll give him something to do. And I have things to do. Yeah, but it'll give you another thing to do. And it'll be something you're actively creating as opposed to reading something and consuming something someone else already did. With fanfiction, you're taking the world and then you're using your own ideas and expanding upon them. And since you have so many opinions, you should write them. I do have a lot of opinions, that's true. Just write your opinions. So we've completed part <laughs> we've completed part two, and now we're going to move on to a few brief interlude chapters. Uh, the first interlude chapter is with someone named Rissen. Rison? Rissen. Rissen. Whatever his name is. Her. Uh, she is a merchant's apprentice, and they're on a road trip into Shinovar. Um, just a note, her, uh, master is named, uh, Vistim, and it's noted that he wears a red flat-topped conical hat. Those words. Amazing. Is a reference? <laughs> so what you're saying is Brandon Sanderson is a hack. Or maybe what I'm saying is, uh... What's his name? Julian Sandar is a world hopper. Oh my god. <laughs> You're almost certainly correct. Anyways, so 
Ryson Rasidin is really freaked out about how stupid the grass is in Shinovar. Like, she thought people were exaggerating when they said that the grass doesn't move. It just doesn't move. There's soil. She doesn't know what soil is. She's never seen it before. It's just so earthy, this soil. It's just grass. So it's interesting to me the fact that, like, farmers back in, like, Kaladin's hometown didn't have soil. They literally just had, like... Rock. They had things growing out of the rock in, like, pods. How would you cultivate that, then? Because soil provides so much of the nutrients. Obviously, it can get minerals if it's growing from a rock, but... I mean, there are, like, things that grow in the desert. I don't... My knowledge of desert plants isn't very good, but I think you can make desert plants grow real good. They usually have really deep root systems, though, because there's still some dampness usually below layers of the cracked, dusty sediment. So, I mean, um, we hear about how in the high storm rain, there's sediment creme that is supposedly, like, has a lot of nutrients for plants. So, I guess, literally, the rock uh, on the ground is made of nutrients. Eat a rock. Be a man. Um, So, uh, Ryson also notes that there are no spren here at all. What a mysterious location. Spren don't like the soil. No soil spren here. So, Shinovar also doesn't experience the high storms. Essentially, this place is real, real weird. Yeah, they've got Truthless here. Well, they won't, t- they won't, they don't like to talk about the Truthless. So, the Stim is here to trade scraps of soul cast metal for chickens, which may or may not be like chicken chickens. I don't know. Generic bird. I mean, I thought they were all chickens, so. Yeah. I mean, given what you know now, it would be reasonable to assume they're just chickens. Um, Genuine chickens. Where you're at in the plot, you haven't really gotten to the chicken lore dump. So you haven't. <laughs> so there's like a fun cultural note here while the stim is uh, doing his trade with the shin, where the cultural norm is to sort of deprecate the value of your own goods, and that's their way of haggling. Can anything be as fun as the chicken discussions? Uh, but yeah, it's, and I, like, every time you say the point of view character's name in this chapter, I immediately forget it, but... Ryson. Rice. Ryson. R-Y-S-N. Risen. Yeah, she's, like, thinking how weird it is and how weird the guy that she's apprenticed to is for doing this, and he's like, no, it's just good business. You'll understand when you're older. Eat this grass. <laughs> Take care of this grass. In your stomach. No, I'm pretty sure he just wants her to take care of it. Fair enough. Anyway, anyway, so take they're Take it out haggling. back and take care of it. <sighs> Sorry, that's where my mind uh, went. So they're haggling over this stuff, and at one point, Vistim mentions the fact that he'd really love another truthless soldier, and that he bought one for a pittance from him seven years ago, <sighs> and sold him again for a fortune. Hmm. Was that Zeth, son, son, yes. Volano, Truthless of Shinovar? Yep. No two ways about it. So this is, we get to know a little bit that 
Stim is the person who was the first person to bring Seth out of Shinovar. So And then realize how talented and smart and dangerous he was. Yeah, and then sold him to someone who knew his value. Hmm. Yeah, the value of the deep, uh, like, perfect emotional stability that Zeth brings to the table as a truthless. He is perfectly stable. Oh my god, he makes Kaladin look like the most well-adjusted person in the world. You don't even know. He gets funky. (laughs) Less stable as time goes on. For real. Um, So that's the important notes in that chapter. Just some cool world building of the culture and the way Shinovar works. Um, The second interlude chapter is from the perspective of someone named Axes the Collector, who is Imian. His skin is blue and he has full control over his physiology. He tattoos himself at will. I want to grow up to be just like him. Yeah, he can shut off his sense of smell, decide not to have a headache anymore. That's so nice. It's all good stuff. I wish I was an Imian. Yeah. So this chapter, the way that it starts off with the text, like, not making clear what happened until later... And also, it's about a church and people praying. And then later on, it's revealed that they're talking about a pile of trash. It's like, this exact thing happens in a chapter of uh, whatever that second book is called. Shadows of Self. Literally, to a T, Axes shows up in this chapter in like, I'm in a church. Wayne shows up. I'm in a church. And then Axis figures out that it's a trash pile. Or we figure out that it's a trash pile through the text. And then we figure out that Wayne's in a bar. A trash bar through the text. And it's like, does Brandon Sanderson just really like this scene? Because it's not... Like, I... I don't have an explicit memory of that scene from that book. Yeah. So everybody feel free to go ahead and read Interlude 1-5, Axies the Collector, and then crack open your copies of Shadows of Self to chapter 13, which is on page 212. Go ahead and see if you can spot any similarities between the two. You're such well, a there nerd. you have it. Homework from Tyler. Big nerd. I've assigned you all homework. I'm going mad with power. Also notable about Axes is that his shadow goes the wrong way. Yes. He's pretty cool. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in here that's like, this seems very evil. Evil. I mean, I don't know. When people's shadows go the wrong way and they're manipulating their own biology, I'm generally not like, oh, sick. What a perfectly normal dude. Axes seems perfectly affable to me. His life's work is to catalog every spren on Roshar. That's a lot of spren. Yeah, he's like, I've seen three new ones in three days. Maybe in a hundred years I'll be done. Does he call himself a Voidbringer at some point? Or does he get uh, called No, the, the crazy beggar says he's a Voidbringer because he, acts, he sleeps on and destroys the beggar's model town. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's like, um, let me get the line. Uh, essentially, like, the beggar asks, like, are you the creator or a Voidbringer? 
Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know. Okay. No, he says, I'm a void bring, I'm afraid. So yeah. that's where you're getting that. Okay. It's because he's sort of like playing along with this uh, crazy beggar to get some clothes. Because he wakes up naked. I see. Don't we all? Blue toes and all, just super naked. I just wanted to, to check if that was real or he was just playing along. Because yeah, to, playing to bring along. up Voidbringer after the whole Dalinar Yasna talking about the original Voidbringers and Chasm, etc. I was just wondering. I mean, it's worth noting that the line is there. Maybe there's some meaning. But for the time being, he is not a Voidbringer. <laughs> Um, he then goes to the village square to witness a regularly occurring spren that comes out every day. That's really kind of cool. It's like this hundred foot tall water spout that materializes into like a many armed figure that drapes itself over the town on golden supports that looks towards the origin of all high storms with a ever changing face and all that look upon it feel drained afterwards. Yeah, it's super weird. It's Syl's older sister. Water Syl. Maybe. You've met so, Syl. Now get ready for <laughs> Water Syl. But yeah, it's just a lot of, like, it's a cool image. It's cool world building. I appreciated it. So the next interlude is called A Work of Art. This is another Zesty Seth chapter. Mm, so zesty. Um... He is currently the servant of the bandit that took him in at the end of the last Seth chapter. He's he's currently having a bad time. Yeah, his <laughs> his master is making him like walk around in a cliche assassin cat suit to intimidate people. Yeah, like I don't remember if it's actually black leather, but I definitely read it as like yeah, Seth says he's dressed all in black in clothes that are too tight. Sexy, sexy Seth. Just zething it up. And he's really not digging all this stuff he has to do. Yeah. Um, we get a note in this chapter that the second tenet of what Zeth cannot do, the first one is that the only life he cannot take is his own. The second tenet is that the... One of uh, the other thing that he cannot be told to do is to relinquish his shard blade and that he's required to carry it until his death, after which Shin Shonestop shamans would recover it from whoever had killed him. Like, so. whoa, can they? Is that a thing? I mean, he seems pretty mm. sure they're going to teleport yeah. to his death location and just snatch it up. Well, not necessarily like teleport, but they would track it down. Your life location determines your death location. I mean, your life leads to a location where you die, so... Your lifestyle determines your death style. We in there. Um, So essentially, his master sends him on a Coolio assassination mission. That's one way to put it. Where we get to see some more magic acrobatics. And by the time Zeth gets there, his target is already dead and also has the head of his former master and says, I'm your master now. Na 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 na. Look at me. I'm your master now. And gives Zeth a list of important people in the world, such as six Alethi high princes and the king of Jokaved, who he's meant to kill. But they have to be killed in order. Yes. 
So essentially, he realizes that he's going to be used to create unrest across the world, and he's like, well, this is my life now. Yep, because somebody finally figured out that he... Can be used to shape the world. Yeah, which he was not into. He, like, specifically didn't want anybody to figure out that he was a super murder assassin. And now there's going to be a lot of hijinks. Is that... Fun hijinks. Is that what it's called? (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of hijinks, in part three we get to see Shallan again. Hey. Wow, you sound so excited. No, I actually like her. Um, So in part three, we move on to a different header, which I assume is excerpts from Shallan's notes. Or Yasna's notes. It's essentially excerpts of notes regarding Voidbringers. Uh, give me one second. Wait, do you mean, uh, Jasna's notes? Yeah, I, I think they're like a combination of Yasna's notes and Shalon's notes. Are we saying Yasna now? Whatever, I don't care. Not Yasna, not the Jasna. atheist. Uh, I will say, possible spoiler, if these are in fact a combination of the notes for the two of them, then this would have to be, like, notes that they haven't written yet. Right? Because Shallan doesn't have yeah. any notes about the Voidbringers until much later. Or they are currently writing. But I mean, like, she doesn't even know. This isn't something that she's researching until the end of the book. I'll just say these are the least important and or interesting header notes in the book. Absolutely. Um, so we return to... Chapter 29 is called Arrogance. It's a pun. Um, it's a fake word. It's Shallan doing that thing where she's really funny, you guys. Well, in this chapter, she gets called out on it, and it's pretty much the end of quippy Shallan, which is good. Yeah. I mean, she still Um, kind of does it, but it's less bad. I mean, this is the chapter that reinforced, that sort of solidifies the fact that you're not supposed to think of Shallan as, like, the cleverest, most funny person in the world. She's just sort of a brat. I mean, I think later on you're still supposed to think that. It's just that later on she... Has improved. Yeah, she, like, actually tries, and it happens much less often. Because later on, when she does it to people, they're like, Wow, Shallan, that actually almost sounded like a clever thing to say. She's like, thanks, I've been working on it. Cultivating it. Drawing it from my memory. Characters have things to work on. So at the beginning of this chapter, Shallan is having a span-read conversation with her brothers. And they're like, this must be so difficult for you. And she's like, difficult? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, real tough for me to, yeah, wink wink. Live my dreams out here. Yeah. So tough. How will she survive? And she feels bad about it. Um, So Shallan's brothers note that the servant that did all the soul casting for their father had died. And then some men wearing a sigil that he had been wearing came around saying that they were here to collect his soul caster. Yeah, there's... I don't have anything to say about these guys. There's more stuff with them later. Yeah, just note that this hand servant was essentially in some kind of secret society that provided the soulcaster to Shallan's father. With the three diamond symbol. So we then move on to a scene where Shallan is studying with Yasna. And as I said, we get a point where... Uh, Yasna essentially puts an end to Quippy Shallan, and Shallan's like, I guess I have some character flaws to work on. Yeah, it's really good. Jasna's like, 
the things that you say aren't funny. They're just the first thing that comes to your mind. And that has wit to it if you're too dumb to think up the second thing that comes to your mind that's way funnier. So, like, everybody that you've been doing this to probably thought it was really funny, but I'm going to need you to cut it out. Yeah, so, as I said, at the beginning of the book, Brandon Sanderson is not, like, thinking of Shalon as the best funniest, most cleverest. He thinks that she's kind of, like, an improv comic. The worst kind of comic. (laughs) Lines have been drawn in the sand. <laughs> um, so the King of Carbranth, uh, Taravangian, stops by to have some lunch and have his portrait drawn. We get some notes about how Shalon talk- thinks of his reputation as being someone who isn't very smart. Yeah, he's such a dummy. He seems like a relatively nice dude. He, I mean, that's what she says, is yeah. that he's like a nice dude. He's just not... Super high stakes, high tension politics. Yeah, not sh- not shrewd. Um, so while Teravangian has a theological quote unquote debate with Yasna, where he's just sort of getting dunked on, uh, Shalon starts drawing a portrait of him, in which when she finishes, there are some strange figures in the background that weren't actually there. Yeah, spooks. Yeah, two tall, invisible figures in cloaks whose heads are, like, ever-changing fractal patterns. This is fine. This is is subpar. She is completely in her right mind. When she sees this, she justifiably gets freaked and pretends that it just wasn't a good picture and insists that he can't see it. So, essentially, those are the major events of that chapter. Chapter 30 is called Darkness Unseen. I just read this, and I don't even remember anything that happened in this chapter. Um, let's see if I can find anything. Oh, um, in this chapter, we get some establishment that Gaz is being pressured by his superiors to make Kaladin go away. Yes. And we get some characterization for Gaz. He is, like, one mistake from becoming a Bridgman himself. Yeah, so. it almost makes you sympathize with this trash man. Did he gamble almost. his money away? How did he end up owing? Who cares? He's trash. <laughs> yeah, he's real trash. It is, is the apothecary also in this one, or was that ages ago? I think that was, that was a few ago. chapters. That was a few chapters okay. ago. Okay. I thought that one was interesting, too. Yeah, it was in the chapter where... There was all the camp life stuff. Okay. Well, the stuff about him price gouging. Yeah. And he was like, I'm calling you out, apothecary. And there was just talk about um, how the business works with the, the, the war camps and whatnot. And also the, 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 the pursuit of those reeds and all that. He's like, this is a hashtag call out. I, I, I just like that scene also because I like medicine things. Sorry. Please continue. Um, the only other thing of value that happens in this chapter is they start practicing the side carry. Yeah, Kaladin realizes that the bridge is essentially one big shield. Yeah. Big old One big shield. shield. Oh yeah, oh yeah. One big shield. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is a reference I don't get. It's not a, ve- it's not a very good reference. Fair enough. And Gaz is like, all right, I'll let you do that, because it exposes half of your people, so I'm sure you'll accidentally be dead. It's great. 
which he's almost right, just not about Kaladin. Yeah. Um, so chapter 31 is called Beneath the Skin. Kaladin's dad is now an alcoholic. I diagnose you with alcoholism. Which, <laughs> which is definitely something you want with your surgeon. Yeah. Uh, I think this is also... Uh, is this where they... Well, I guess I can't ask that question without spoiling the Try answer. and rob them, and then he uses oh. the light to illuminate them, and so they can see their sins. This is where they almost get robbed. Okay. Yes. That is the answer. This one's a little on the nose, but... Do you get it? So Rashon has been making their life miserable, essentially telling everyone to stop giving Kaladin's father money for his services and let him starve and have to spend the spheres that were given to him. Well, yeah, they already weren't paying him. They were just giving him, like... Donations. Donations of food and, like, stuff that he would have to pay money for. Um... But then, yeah, the guy was like, if he doesn't want money, give him nothing. And everyone's like, sure, I'll jump on board with this terribleness. This seems like a guy I can trust. Sheeple. So that night, a bunch of people from the town get together in some spooky costumes to try and steal the spheres back from Kaladin's father. And Kaladin has a bit of a moment where, in the dark, they look real scary and threatening but when calvin's father exposes them with the light they just seem sort of cringy and weird villagers you have posted cringe don't they also say (laughs) that we'll take it back to him so they want to take the wealth and hand it right back over to the lord Mm. well because i think the lord is like kind of their totals their total self-aware wolves yeah i think he's like mildly punishing the whole town or they at least think that he is. Yeah, they think they can make their lives better by appeasing Rishon. No. If you just bow down to the billionaire, I mean the landlord, <laughs> then maybe they'll deign to make your life a little bit better. It's the trickle-down theory. Everybody loves if the trickle-down theory. just give all of the money back to the billionaire, sorry, I mean the landlord... <sighs> then it'll trickle down to the rest of you. I think you mean job creators? If you give the money We boot lickers now. Uh, guys, listen. I'm trying to drink alcohol. I need you all to step back. I can still smell the boot polish on your breath. So, that's that chapter. Uh, chapter 32 is called Side Carry. Yeah. Uh, the, the most important thing about this chapter is the Lopen. He calls you Goncho. And has one arm, and has many cousins, who calls him the Lopen. He's the new member of Bridge Four. Hey. He's, he's a good guy. You must find the most important words a man can say. <laughs> hey, Gancho. Hey. <laughs> I'm sure Krem posting would like that. Find the most important words a man can say. I've got a cousin. <laughs> the Lopen is the main character. We're all just side characters in the Lopen story. I think I'd read that. Pretty much. I'm sure there's Lopen-centric fanfiction. Anyways, so Calvin takes on uh, the Lopen as a new member of Bridge 4, and they immediately are put on a new bridge run. The effectiveness of the bridge improves by 200%. Also, what improves the effectiveness of this particular bridge, but none of the other bridges, is that Calvin decides to make this bridge assault the one where they do their side carry technique, and it saves literally all of them 
but dooms everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> because they try to copy him, but they're not as fit as Bridge Forest. Or well-trained. Well, none of them have or- the Lopen. <laughs> the Lopen wasn't even carrying the bridge. Anyways. It's called moral um, support. So, like, there's a whole cascading effect of the fact that Bridge 4 used this new technique that results in there being barely any bridges making it to the chasm and the assault completely failing, and it's all Kaladin's fault. And I think this is a sort of like a realistic thing where Kaladin realizes, like, if I had taken a broader perspective, I would have realized this is going to be terrible. Kaladin realizes, I'm a genius. Oh no. And he's like, yeah, my people survived, but no one else does. Which I think is sort of a realistic lapse. He gets like hundreds slash thousands of people killed because his 30 bridge crew members had to all live. I think that's going to do great for his angst levels. Yeah, his uh, mental health. He and Zeth are like ships in the night. (laughs) The more concrete consequence of this is that this is a offense worthy of a death sentence. Somebody's gotta die. Yeah, which Gaz and Lamoral are happy to sentence him to. But then he logics them. No, they're still sentencing him to death. They are just not going to kill him right there and then on the battlefield. So so this chapter ends with Kaladin being beaten by some soldiers and taken back to the war camps to serve his sentence. Yeah, we do get one more note in here reinforcing that he has this burst of strength uh, during the bridge run. But mm-hmm. it's, it's not like important specifically, just that it seems like every time he needs strength during a bridge run, he gets some weird burst of it. Oh, but also um, when they're beating him up, um, the, the the magical globe money spheres, because he was carrying them with him because they're too valuable to leave in the barracks, they tumble out of his pockets and they're empty again. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, really makes you thinking emoji, huh? Yeah, yeah they, they, they say that they're drained of the stormlight. Hmm. 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 And that's the end of this chapter and this section. We had more to talk about than I thought, apparently. That keeps happening. Yeah. But I appreciate having the discussion. Yeah. Uh, having- We're all highly tired. I had some coffee right before this. Having read The Way of Kings in its entirety, I can say this book is pretty good and maybe deserves discussion. I can't wait until I'm done reading side content and I'm allowed to continue Stormlight. Wow, this is quite a turn from that infamous first episode of our discussion of this book. Uh, don't worry, I have some stuff to harsh on pretty strongly, but we'll get to it in another section. Like, I do have a thing that I ranted to be on about for like 10 minutes one day. And it's something that we might have to do like an off-air talk, just because I think it ties into our own personal moral codes oh no that's a different thing oh that's a different one yeah so apparently there's multiple oh no there's more uh yeah as my catchphrase says we'll get to it we'll get to it everyone great and you everyone i think you should know that we have a twitter it's at wheel reading i'll have it linked in the description as usual i don't know why i'm talking in this cadence it just sort of felt right yeah. The other thing you should know is that if you leave a review on iTunes or your podcast service, 
it helps people find us, and we love hearing from anyone who listens to this podcast. It is great. It keeps us away from becoming Kaladin. It's a good way to think about it. Right now, we're at Lopen. We're afraid of becoming Kaladin, and if we become Seth, it's all going to go off the rails. Keep us from this fate, dear listener. Anyways, I'm Jesse. I'm Tyler. And I'm Beyond. We'll see you next time. Yeah, thanks for listening. Great. Now that the recording's done, I can go ahead and tell you. 